Well, if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, easily found. The book of beginnings is at the beginning. We're going to begin with uh, chapter 43 this morning, but only look at the first 14 verses. So let me go ahead and read that. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him wasn't an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. Then their father, Israel, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gym, or gum rather, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we love your word because it reveals you, your plan for us and for the world. It reveals Christ from Genesis to Revelation, that you have intended, O God, to gather a people for Yourself out of the mass of fallen mankind through the ministry of the second Adam, the one who is greater than David, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than all, greater than the angels, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the express image of our God, the Holy One, the Redeemer, the Glorious One. In Him alone is salvation, and we confess His name And thank you that your word teaches us about him and teaches us how we are to live as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, be glorified this morning in our our worship, in our listening, and, and in your word. But may we be not just hearers of the word, but doers as well, O God, going from this place uh, and not just proclaiming your word, but doing, O God, in in as those in submission to our Lord Jesus Christ, and we play, pray in His name. Amen. Well, it amazes me that 50 years ago, next month, there was an iconic event held just a couple of hours south of my family's home in upstate New York. 
And of course, you know that that event was called Woodstock, and it was promoted as three days of peace and music. And here's what I want to say. Peace is often pursued, but rarely possessed. And nations and cities and communities, and families and marriages and churches and everywhere you go, peace, it seems, is harder to find than, than a unicorn. One author I found wrote this, we almost uniformly profess to desire peace. And throughout time, peace has been the object of countless works of philosophy, economics, political theory, art, etc. Indeed, virtually every academic discipline has attempted to develop a formula for peace. But something is terribly wrong. Despite this craving for peace, the world is utterly consumed by strife. Well, Jacob's family was utterly consumed by strife for many years, going way back to the beginning, back to Jacob's two wives, the jealousy between Rachel and Leah. And that strife continued in Jacob's 12 sons. You see, they had learned well from their parents. And the climax, of course, of that strife was their betrayal of Joseph because of their intense bitterness and hatred of their brother. And even in recent events, as we have been going through these chapters in Genesis, we see that Jacob is still distinguishing between the sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel. He would tolerate, we saw, the loss of Simeon. He didn't want it, but he would tolerate it as long as what? If he could keep Benjamin safe, the only living, he thought, son of Rachel. He said of the two sons of Rachel, his brother is dead and he is the only one left. Only one? Only one of Rachel? Only true son? Only son he cared about? What are you talking about, Jacob? And notice he said, my son shall not go down with you. And yet the entire family had years ago gone down into the pit of bitterness and disunity and division through their selfish ambition. As Judah himself once went down, the author tells us, to a place where he then engaged in great immorality. It turns out even incest with his his own daughter-in-law. So must peace remain elusive, sought, but never secured? Is peace a unicorn? Beautiful, but not actually real. Well, let's look at the narrative today. We're told straight away that the famine was severe in the land. There was no harvest at all that year. You wander around and all you saw was cracked earth and weeds. Okay, The silos containing only spider webs and flies. Little food remained in the land. That which the brothers had brought back from Egypt had mostly been devoured. God was tightening the screws. They were facing the real possibility of starving to death. And that's, of course, a powerful motive, right? God was so, God was forcing this family to deal with their problems, to deal with their issues, to deal with their sins. They can no longer keep those sins and issues 
buried and hidden. And so Jacob urges his sons to return to Egypt to buy additional food. He says, go, my sons, go, buy some food before we starve to death. And so we read that Judah immediately speaks up. And he says very respectfully to his father, dad, remember what we told you, what this Lord of Egypt said, unless you bring your brother back, you won't see my face. So don't bother. You will get nothing from us in Egypt unless you bring this brother back that you profess that you have. Well, furthermore, they certainly knew that if they, in fact, returned to Egypt without their brother, Benjamin, they would, in fact, be taken for spies. They would be, the, the Egyptians would assume that they were lying, probably spies. They would be locked up for life or probably actually executed. And so the brothers continued to hesitate. It seemed like there was no end to their paralysis and their equivocation. For many years at this time, the family of Jacob had a leadership void, we might say. There was no godly, righteous leadership. Judah was no better than the others. The family had lost its bearings. It was, as it were, in the wilderness, just dazed and confused, like those vultures in the, the movie, you know? What are we going to do next? I don't know. What do you want to do? Of course, Jacob should have provided that godly leadership, right? Jacob was the son of of Abraham, faithful Abraham and faithful Isaac. And he had the word, he had heard the words of God's covenant promise, but Jacob was too much a part of the problem. He was too paralyzed by his own fear and prejudices to offer any true leadership. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son. He was the appointed leader, as it were. He should have offered leadership, but he had just ridiculous, ridiculous ideas to put forward. Hey, Dad, kill your grandsons if I don't bring uh, Simeon back. Oh, yeah. Good plan that one was. I don't bring Benjamin back. There was a void of leadership in the family until now. Until now. See, following Jacob's complaint in verse 6, Judah, who was the fourth son of Leah, finally finds some character. And he steps up, or he steps into that void. He fills that gap. And he becomes the family's really de facto uh, leader. And we see it not just here with his, this initiative he takes with his father and his family, but especially in chapter 44, looking ahead, it's interesting that the author in verse 14 says, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. So Judah is, is, uh, is brought out there as, as, the, as the leader when Judah and his brothers came and in verse 18, we see that Judah, or we will see that Judah becomes the spokesman for the family as they stood before the Lord of Egypt. So Judah's leadership right here becomes the breakthrough the family needed. This becomes the turning point as this narrative proceeds. Okay? Um, and there's something very important in verse 6. I want you to notice. Verse 6, Israel said, seems like a small thing, right? Verse 8, then Judah said to Israel, his father. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them. Now, throughout chapter 42, 
Jacob, or their father had been called Jacob. In fact, even in chapter 37, following the loss of Joseph, their father was called Jacob. In fact, not since verse 13 of chapter 37 had he been called Israel. That's significant. You want to you notice those little details in the Bible as you're studying and reading the Bible. Notice those little details that Jacob had not been called Israel since way back in chapter 37. Jacob was, of course, his birth name. You know that he was a twin brother. He was born at the same time to, with uh, his brother Esau, but he was the younger of the two. Esau was born first. And he was called Jacob because he was born grasping onto his brother's heel as they both were coming out through the birth canal. Jacob meaning he clutches. And indeed, according to his name, Jacob was this self-seeking, manipulative man. He was always clutching for something he might take for himself, stirring up strife everywhere he went with his brother, with his uncle, with his father. Always a mess, always stirring up strife until the very first time when he got caught between that proverbial rock and the hard place at a place called Penuel. It's in chapter 32, I believe. And I can't go into too many details there. I hope you know the story. But he had been with his uncle Laban, and he had worn out his welcome. Let's put it that way, okay? So he had nowhere to go, so he was going back to his family. But the problem is, he had Laban behind him, who was mad at him, and he had who in front of him? He said, oh, Esau's coming. Oh, and he had really gotten Esau burned when he took his birthright and various other blessings. So he was in a jam. He had two men, he thought, who hated his guts, both with big, powerful armies ready to smack Jacob upside the head, right? And he was left alone one dark night, and the Bible says that a man wrestled with him into the breaking of the day. And Jacob was himself broken that day. He was physically wounded, and his dislocated bone symbolized that brokenness. And that midnight wrestler said to him this, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That change of name is repeated in chapter 35. And then very importantly, in verse 11 of chapter 35, the Lord God says this, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So what is that? That's nothing less than the repeat of God's covenant promise to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. Okay? So Israel was God's name given to Jacob, signifying that Jacob's family, his 12 sons, would inherit the covenant blessings promised to Abraham. However, in recent years, when he was wallowing in all of his self-pity and all of his confusion and seeking to protect what he thought was his, he had been called 
Jacob for years. He had been called Jacob, not Israel. So suddenly, and suddenly being called Israel by the author here, by Moses, okay, the Lord seems to be indicating that his covenant community, his holy people, his church, okay, is actually going to rise out of the ashes of this house nearly lost through division and disharmony and jealousy. What's interesting is that back in chapter 37, when Israel, we're told, sent his son Joseph off to go search for his brothers, he was actually asking Joseph, check on your brother's shalom. It's peace. It's not said that. It's said well-being. But the word shalom, that Hebrew word, means peace or well-being or wholeness. See if there is shalom with your brothers. And now again, Israel, following his son Judah's lead, who again is becoming the de facto leader of the family, filling that void, uh, he again is seeking the family's shalom. That word occurs four times in this chapter. We'll look at it again uh, next week, the Lord willing. But it only, it only uh, occurs as peace once. The other times it's all well or well-being. Now, Judah made that breakthrough, as I mentioned, with his father and his brothers through his own leadership of self-sacrifice. Verses 8 and 9, he says, send the boy with me. Okay, He says, I will be the pledge of his safety. Now, think back to the Judah of chapter 38. Back there, Judah, same man, also offered a pledge to this woman who he didn't know was his daughter-in-law. The pledge what? So he could engage in an act of immorality with her, right? His pledge served his self-centered and evil purposes. This time, the pledge he offers is himself. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of his family rather than previously willing to sacrifice somebody else for his own good. I will be a pledge of his safety. From your hand, or from, yeah, from my hand, you shall require him. And it is this selfless, self-sacrificing action that saves the family and ultimately does restore this shalom. Because only when Judah takes this responsibility, being willing to bear whatever blame might come to the family, only then is Jacob willing to send his youngest son, Benjamin. It's Judah's selfless action that breaks down Jacob's resistance and frees him from his fears. You can see this in verses 11 through 14, where following Judah's example, Israel, again, we're noting the, the name Israel, he exercises all this godly leadership. Uh, take some of the choice fruits. Take double the money, because remember, they got their money back. Take what you should have paid the last time, or what you did pay, but somehow you got back. Take that plus money for the next uh, load of grain. And take also, notice, your brother. He doesn't say, take my son. He says, take your brother, your brother, unity, okay, family, peace. And he says, 
If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Jacob is finally displaying humility. His selfish desires and his pride is crushed. Letting go of his fears, he's finally trusting God for his family and for his emotions. See, Judah's renunciation of selfishness enables Jacob also to do likewise. The family is being healed. The family is being restored. The family is being reunited. And the family finally will possess shalom. And God's promise of a united nation, of a united church, a united people will be fulfilled. But actually, not for many years. Because actually, if you know your Old Testament history, except for a fairly brief period during the reign of David and Solomon, Israel remained a nation, yes, divided by strife and division and jealousy and antagonism. It became divided under the son of Solomon, remember, under Rehoboam? Never, ever again to be reunited until... Many years later, unto us a child was born. Unto us a son is given, whose name is the Prince of Peace, the Son of Israel, the Son of Judah. Jesus, of course, and Paul said of Him, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might, which is the New Testament version of uh, shalom, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And you remember what he said to his disciples? He said, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. How is he doing that? Through, like his father Judah, through his leadership of self-sacrifice and self-denial. Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. He had prophesied what would be there. He said, on the he, they, will, they, will, they will put me to death. On the third day, I will rise again. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before me, he endured the cross. He endured the shame. Right? The shame of being nailed to a tree, being displayed, bearing the curse of God. For the joy of giving us peace and making us one body. He gave up his life to do that. That many that a vast people encompassing groups from all over the world, that we might have peace with God and that we might be one body. And so there's no one else who gives peace because no one else can break the grip of sin and hostility that's in the human heart by nature. Only Jesus gives peace because only He has peace to give. What do we have to offer? Warfare. Hostility, division, animosity, hatred, bitterness, etc. With people, there's only war. 
But the prophet spoke of the peace the Messiah would bring, like in Micah 4. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit. Every man under his vine, under his fig tree, no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So peace replaces war in the ministry of the Messiah. Isaiah 11, the wolf shall lay down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. I've seen in India that, that them, them uh, what do you call it, when they pull the snake out of the basket? Oh my goodness, that's scary. Don't put a child there. Except in the ministry of the Messiah. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So peace replaces hostility. So because Jesus gives peace, remember what Paul wrote in Romans? For we have been justified, or since we've been justified with God, we have peace. Because Jesus gives peace, we who are in Christ, indwelt by His Spirit, we also can have peace in our relationships. Because we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Peace is a gift that God gives. I give peace, Jesus said. I give you peace. I leave with you peace. He is the Prince of Peace who gives peace through His Holy Spirit. James 3, who is wise to understanding among you? By His good conduct, let Him show works, His works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is the wisdom that comes from down from above. It's not, I'm sorry, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let me ask you, are you a warmonger? Or are you a peacemaker? Do you stir up strife through jealousy and selfish ambition? Or do you fill that leadership void like Judah and then Jacob by living by the wisdom of Christ, which is pure and peaceable and gentle and full of mercy? I'll tell you a quick story. Last night, my family was trying to have a nice, quiet dinner to enjoy one another and to enjoy food in one of our favorite restaurants, only about a mile from this building in the great city of Dallas, Georgia. And we're kind of off in a corner, maybe on purpose, I don't know. And suddenly there's this ruckus or like noise, people, like, what's going on? Well, it turns out 
two parties, two families who were sitting in adjacent booths around the corner from where we didn't see them, they got into a shouting match. Shouting match. F-words are flying and S-words are flying. The whole restaurant could hear this shouting match. It lasted for about 10 minutes. I was getting scared. I had two of my ladies without me, you know, my wife and my daughter. And I'm thinking it was that kind of situation where if someone was packing one of those, there would have been a shooting. I'm telling you right then and there, it was bad. I went up to the employees and I said, is someone calling the police and getting these guys out of here? Well, that's what happened. Here's my point, and that's an extreme example. Never seen that ever in my life before. Hope never again. But here's my point. That's an extreme example. But if your life tends to be full of relational turmoil and stress, raised voices, angry hearts, maybe, maybe some of that blame is, is yours. It's not just always the other people. Maybe some of that's your fault. Okay, begin to practice the leadership of self-sacrifice because peace will never be secured through self-pursuit, only by laying down your life for your friends through self-sacrifice, through self-denial. Paul said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look out, look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know that passage. Here's the point that Paul is making. He's really contrasting, he doesn't say this in plain language, but he's contrasting Jesus with the first Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam, the image of God, as a man, okay, what did he want? He did not embrace his humility, but followed the serpent's uh, counsel and wanted to be like God. The first Adam. The second Adam, Jesus, was in fact the image of God, or is the image of God, divine himself, and yet he didn't grasp that, but he was willing to humble himself and become a servant, even giving his life that we might have life and that we might have peace. But that's not just his way. It's also his example. He said, by this, or John said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So by having this mind, as Paul says, of this Christ-imitating servant leadership, with this mind, you'll be patient with others, not demanding, not walking away, not seeking revenge, but patiently waiting for God to bring unity and shalom, peace, wholeness, well-being in your community through your example of self-sacrifice and service. The good of others 
will be your priority and not your own good because Jesus laid down His life for you. In this way, you will no longer be a part of the problem, but by grace you'll be one who secures shalom or peace. And you will, you will be one who brings peace into every community and every relationship of which you are a part. The glory be goes to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for Jesus who is our peace. We are by nature, all of mankind, at war with you and with one another. If there's to be peace, it's only in Christ because only he has peace to give. We only offer disunity and bitterness and anger and war. So thank you, Lord, that you have broken us as you broke Jacob and Judah in Christ. We have been broken. We have been humbled. And we have received peace. So let us be peacemakers in Christ by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, by His works producing fruit in our hearts, O God. Everywhere we go, may there be peace and not war. And may it be to the glory of Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen.